I'm Brian No. He's Jimmy Cook here on The Fan. I want to welcome in Jesse Rogers. He covers the White Sox and the Cubs for ESPN. I want to start on a happy note, Jesse, but when we're talking White Sox and Cubs, I just saw a stat this morning where the uh, the Nationals have won four straight against the Cubs. And I'm like, man, that 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 really hits home. <laughs> that hit up, hits home. They yeah. won four straight. Who has been the more disappointing team between the White Sox and Cubs this season? I mean, I guess you could say it's close, but I, I'd still say it's the White Sox. I mean, this is a team that's you know, 15 games under 500 in a worse division than the NL Central. I mean, the NL Central wasn't great to start the season, but certainly, certainly Milwaukee and Cincinnati have proven to be better than anything in the AL Central right now. And the White Sox to be that far out of first place, that far below 500, is just kind of shocking with a team that's supposed to be um, finishing off uh, uh, you know, the rebuild and being competitive and all these things. So, yeah, it's the White Sox, definitely. The Cubs were, were never going to be a World Series contender. I think they were an 80-win team to, 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 to go back to March and look at the, the, the squad on paper, and they're slightly underachieving. I actually think, let's say they don't make any trades, they could probably still end up being an 80, 80 win team. Now, when they sell some players, that's a different story. So um, they're not that far from what I thought they'd be and what Vegas thought they'd be, while the White Sox are complete and utter disappointment. So I, I would I would put them above the Cubs. Jesse, you mentioned that rebuild that the White Sox have been on. I, I remember being back in Chicago in 2018, and a lot of the local coverage when that rebuild was was still churning along was, in a couple years, the White Sox are going to be really good. They feel like that they're going to take these leaps and, and be a real contender, and season after season they haven't really hit those expectations the way they wanted to and it's at its lowest point right now I know we don't have time to go into all of that because there's much more nuance to it than just one thing but why haven't they been able to take those steps year after year with this particular core yeah you're right there's a lot more nuance to it I I would point to two things Um, one is is more obvious and that's just not necessarily finishing off the rebuild with the free agent signing or two that puts you over the top like they just stopped short of doing that but that's to contend for the world series just to contend in the division is a whole other story and you're right back in 18 and 19 all of us and me included were oh it looks good but you know what that's because we look at prospect rankings and talk to scouts and and we're not diving into the players the way the front office should be doing and what i'm getting at is what they failed to, to really realize is they didn't have a team of go-getters, a team of we're going to win or else. We're going we're, we're gonna to do this, and you're going to come along for the ride with us. It, 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 you, you can't look into a guy's uh, heart if you're just a, prog- and a prognosticator, but that's, a, that's the job of a team, and they got it wrong. They got it wrong with players handing them money before they did anything in the majors and then hoping and crossing their fingers that they'd be those guys. And they got it wrong with certain players that haven't really progressed to the point of, of um, you know, being peak versions of themselves. So I think there's some things there that are sort of um, hard to define back in 18 or 19, but as you look back at it, you realize, okay, you know what? This guy is injury prone. This guy doesn't have a motor. This guy doesn't have this. This guy. They're, they're, they're just short on some things that maybe you couldn't see early on, but it's a, the job of a team to see it. And when you rebuild, you're, you're betting on all this stuff. You're, you're gambling on all of it. And when it doesn't work out, it should probably cost you your job. And for some reason it hasn't with Rick Hahn or Kenny Williams just yet. So 
yeah, like I said, it's more nuanced. It's, it, it is a deeper conversation. But the bottom line is they invested in the wrong players. That's the bottom line. Why they're the wrong players, we could go on and on about it, but I, I highlighted a few of those things. He's Jesse Rogers, covers the White Sox and the Cubs for ESPN, joining us here on The Fan. Jesse, who are some of the biggest names that could be on the move at the deadline from the White Sox and the Cubs? Well, there's no doubt Cody Bellinger and Marcus Stroman are at the top of the list for the Cubs. I mean, you can get a lot for both those guys. I I suggest packaging them together because the Cubs lack star power. And um, on their major league team or in in their farm system, they need star power. And how do you get it? Well, maybe you could trade for the next stud player if you if you package them both. Left-handed slug is is incredibly valuable um, in the, at the deadline. Uh, starting pitching is as well. I think you know the Yankees should go after both those guys. I mean, the Yankees should back up the truck for Cody Bellinger. They've been on a search for left-handed power for for three or four years, um, and they need a starter as well. I mean, I but I don't even know if they have enough to give the Cubs to get those guys. But, yeah, those two are at the top of the list. They're, I think Mark Leiter Jr., there's a couple relievers in there that will be gone as well. On the White Sox, it really is about Lucas Giolito, whose contract is up, Kendall Graveman, Lance Lynn as well. Um, he's pitching himself into being traded. Those are the biggest names. If Liam Hendricks is healthy, you could see him on the move. But I think um, Giolito and Lynn are at the top of the list, along with Kendall Graveman. I, I don't know what – maybe you throw in Gavin Sheets. Tim Anderson is the big question mark with, with the White Sox. Would they, can they move him? He's having a horrendous year, just a terrible year. But from what I've been told, you know, a, a team interested in him would probably move him to second base, take some pressure out of him. I'm not sure there's many contenders that need a starting shortstop anyway, and he's played terribly at that position. So if you move him, he's probably going to second base. I don't know, the, the Mariners have terrible production at second base, and maybe a change of scenery for half a season or two months would do Tim Anderson well. So um, not sure what the market is for him, but there might be a few teams interested at second. Uh, but certainly Lucas Giolito will, will be at the top of the list for the White Sox guys. You blink twice, and it's it's crazy that Tim Anderson's already 30. I mean, we go back to where that core was for the White Sox and, and the development back in 2018 and 2019. And as you highlighted there, Jesse Rogers, ESPN, nice enough to take some time with us. This has been a horrific year for him. Is Anderson one of those players that it was it, we we moved too quickly with him? Is this an anomaly? Is it the injuries that he's had in his career? Like we mentioned, being at 30 years old and maybe a position move and a change of scenery does solve it, but what's been the biggest attribute with his struggles on this disappointing White Sox front? Yeah, I think he's different than those other guys because um, he's had 300, you know, 300 right. average seasons, four in a row. He's been on the WBC. He's been on all-star teams. Um, he's never been a great defender, but he's been average on his in, during his good years, and he's been elite at the plate. Uh, this year is a complete disaster. And there's some off-the-field things that have gone public that have probably contributed to it all. He's, it just seems like he's out to lunch. He just does not seem locked in mentally, um, let alone physically. Um, and so when that happens, you end up having the worst year of your, your career. So I do think he's a little different. I do think a change of scenery would help. Um, unfortunately, the, the Sox are not bringing out the best of, out of him right now, uh, and, and they haven't really. It, 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 the Sox don't have a great support system, in my opinion. You know, when, when it's easy when things are going well. When things aren't going well, you you need that support system. It just doesn't feel like it's there. Um, so I think it's it's a bunch of reasons, but 
I, you know, he's just not the leader that people thought that he probably would be, especially as a shortstop, an all-star at that position. That's just a, normally a leadership position in a lot of ways. Um, but he's just been out to lunch. I think he's in a different category. The problem with most of the other guys is just been injury prone. And the White Sox should have saw that in a couple guys. Elo Jimenez came injury prone. They put him out in left field. They put him out in right field. That's part of the bad roster construction, a bunch of DHs on this team. I think they thought they probably could slug their way to, to contention the way maybe the Phillies have and even the Braves have. But they haven't stayed healthy enough, and they haven't even slugged when they have been healthy other than maybe Luis Robert this year. You know, Andrew Vaughn hasn't turned into that dangerous hitter that they thought he'd be, at least not yet. Um, so it's, it's, it's a combination of things. But I go back to, you know, I use Jose Ramirez as an example. That is a guy that will just carry your team. He'll carry your team in the locker room. He'll carry your team on the field. He will play all out as the best player on the Cleveland Guardians. And he, and he brought them to a division title with a less-than-great roster last year. Who's the Sox player that does that? Who's the Sox player that gets dirty, that leads that team, that is nasty? It's just, I don't see it. I don't see it. And you can't have you know Lance Lynn and Liam Hendricks doing it from, from, from a pitching standpoint, especially when Lance Lynn hasn't been good the last couple of years and Liam's been in and out and he's a closer. You need a position player or two to, to be nasty and dirty. Um, you know, Mike Rizzo a couple of years ago traded for Adam Eaton for that exact reason, and he helped them to a World Series championship. I don't see that in Tim Anderson, and I don't see that on anybody on that roster. Um, it needs a, a, a change, and, and Tim Anderson's probably at the top of the list. This might be a stupid question, Jesse. I'm not sure, but um, I, I want to start with Otani. So the Angels owner, Artie Moreno, is like, not trading him to the Dodgers, right? Doesn't want to trade him to the Crosstown rival. If Otani played for the Cubs, or if Otani played for the White Sox, if they could get the best deal from their crosstown rival, would they have the same mindset as Artie Moreno and like, nope, not doing that? Well, we'll see if Moreno has been, you know, sort of if that's really true or not. Mm-hmm. We'll see. We'll see. Maybe it is. I mean, Otani's a unicorn, so I can't tell you for sure that the Cubs or Sox would say no. All I can tell you is there's been a history of trades, most recent and and big ones, right? The most recent one being. Aloy and Cease for, for Jose Quintana. There ha- I, I, I think if, look, you are, you are really hurting your franchise. If the Crosstown team has the best offer and you don't make it, I think that's silly. I think yeah. that's silly. But I, I can see ownership saying something like that. But that's where a strong GM has to come in and convince his owner. Look, the Dodgers are paying more than any other team. Theo Epstein used to talk about a Crosstown tax. When you do a deal cross town, sometimes you have to pay an, a tax, an extra, an extra player or two because it is that rival team in your town. So if the Dodgers are willing to pay that tax, I think the Angels would be stupid to say no to the best deal and take something less. Uh, now, maybe, again, Otani is, is such a late, lightning rod for attention, um, and, and you know, you're going to get hammered by trading him no matter who you trade him to, and especially if it's the Dodgers, I get all that. And maybe that would prevent the Cubs or Sox from doing business. But I think if it's the best deal, it's the best deal and you take it. So, but that's where, you know, ownership is, owners can be emotional about things. GMs have to take emotion out of it and think about what's best for his team and then go to the owner and convince him that's the deal. So I'm not convinced the Dodgers would be out of the mix. They, along with the Rays and the Orioles, have 
one of the best farm systems. And and if they offer a six for one or even a five for one that's better than any other team, I, I still I would not discount the Angels from taking that deal. But it will be up to Perry Manias and the GM to go convince his owner of it. Yeah, Jesse Rogers, great stuff, bud. Good talking some uh, some uh, baseball with you, and uh, hope to do it sometime soon, man. Yeah, trade deadline should be interesting. We'll talk soon. Take Thanks, care. Jesse. Thank you. There he is, Jesse Rogers. Covers the White Sox and the Cubs for ESPN. I'm Brian No, He's Jimmy Cook here on The Fan. I want to welcome in Mike Chappell. Covers the Colts for CBS4. And Fox 59 joins us here on The Fan. Uh, Mike, we'll get to Jonathan Taylor in a second, but I, I just have to ask for curiosity's sake. Uh, do you pour water on your toothbrush, okay, before you put toothpaste on, after you put toothpaste on, or or not at all? What do you do? Yes, after. After? To- toothpaste on the brush, rinse it on, and then go to work. There you go. And that, that's a process that works out. Not a pre-go, a pre-guy, though, huh? You don't do it beforehand, just post. Well, why would you water it down until you've got something to water down? <laughs> Makes sense to I'm, me. I'm all into conservation. I, hey, hey, man, I get Well, that's a good segue to the running back market, right? Because teams are all in uh, to conservation over here. No long-term deals, as you well know, for the top three running backs that were in line for an extension, Saquon, Josh Jacobs, Tony Pollard, what do you think of that, and more importantly, how does it relate to Jonathan Taylor going forward? Well, I, I, I don't think – I mean, it, it impacts him because it's showing what the market – what teams believe the market is, and these are good teams with very good players. It's a little different because if, I, if I've seen right, Barkley and, uh, and one of the other guys, uh, Jacobs, won't be – aren't expected to report for training camp under the franchise. Like they they will at some point because it's it's still ten million dollars. I mean, come on, let's get real. But Taylor's under contract, so it's a little different. If he goes to the extreme of not showing up, he gets fined. These other guys technically aren't under contract, so you don't find them. But it, it, it it's to me it is sort of an odd situation because it, it it's almost team to team. And I would argue that Taylor has maybe more value to the Colts than the other players have to their teams. I think Juan Barkley is probably very, very similar because of, you know, Daniel Jones and all that. But it it just makes so much sense to get Taylor done. I'm I'm, I'm certainly the... Numbers have to work for each side, which is why something's not done. Is because one side wants more and one side wants to pay less. But if you look at the extreme case, any extension for Taylor has got to be worth, I don't know, $24 million guaranteed. Because that's what this year's contract and two two franchise tags the next two years would be worth minimum $25 million. And so, so it makes sense to get a long-term deal to where you're not doing the tag. The tag is a protection allowed by the players. Keep in mind, these franchise tags were, were bargained in place. 
the players agreed the franchise transition tags in the labor agreement. They get something they wanted. They gave the owners the, the, this this ability to keep their high end players. So as much as hand wringing that players do, players agreed to this. Now it's only going to obviously going to impact a very very small number of players, the really really good players. But uh, I, I, I just think that it, it, it makes sense for both sides to get done. It extends the Colts practice of drafting and rewarding your own Shaq, Braden Smith, Naheem Hines, and Grover Stewart, and on and on. And it gives it gives Taylor some financial security that doesn't it doesn't involve playing out this year and being tagged twice. And, and that would send such an awful message in the locker room, in my mind, to make arguably, in my mind, their best player. To me, he's their best player. And making him play out his contract and then, you know, franchise, franchise, it, it would just be a really, really bad message so it, it, it obviously hinges on how much the Colts are willing to, to, to give and to some degree, no, to a lot of degree, how much Taylor is willing to accept. And you can say, well, play out your contract, and then, boy, you hit the free agent market. Well, we've seen what the free agent market is for these guys. It's not what, you know, Joe Mixon, who's a great running back, took a pay cut. Normally on restructures, all players do is push money forward. He took the pay cut. I think I saw was it five million this year and four million next year, or vice versa. That's really rare. You know, Dalvin Cook gets cut after four quality years. So it's a lot of times players say, "Well, yeah, I'll play it at up, Grant and Barrett." But boy, I've got free agency ahead. Well, why would anyone think the market's going to get better? For running back, so this is really a, a, a dicey situation where both sides have valid arguments. But I think Taylor's got more—not leverage, but a better argument because of his value to the team. He's still young, you know. This the, the, the Colts aren't won't be looking at Taylor as their running back for the next five or six years. That, that's not the case. They've got to be looking at him as their as their running back for the next two years, maybe three years. So it, it just makes sense to get something done that's really maybe a two year. We've talked this maybe a two year deal with guaranteed money. The third year can be whatever you want it to be. But his value to the Colts is, is so significant because you got. I don't care whether you get the rookie quarterback or you got Minshew. This is going to be a team that wants to run the ball. If the offensive line gets back to playing decent, they will run the ball. And Taylor is the focal point. So I, I think something gets done, but it's got to be something that works for both sides. Chap, when I look around the league, 
right now, and this is, I know you chuckle at it because it's just, it's what modern sports journalism is at this point, is reacting to everything, including tweets on Twitter. And, you know, you have running backs across the board, Derrick Henry, Jonathan Taylor, Austin Eckler, just to name a few, coming out publicly in support of their position group. And, and I admire that. And I, I think it's great that they are expressing their frustrations. But you talk about the need to get an extension done with Jonathan Taylor and the desire, you'd think, by both parties to get one done. But but Derrick Henry makes $12.5 million a year annually, and that's the third highest annual evaluation in professional football. And that's about my mark for where I'd be comfortable two or three years, regardless, paying for Jonathan Taylor. I would assume, with that only being $2.5 million above a tag this year, I know it doesn't impact JT, but just for the example, that he wants more than that. And I get it. Like I understand he wants to fight for that, but it's a lost cause with where the tag is and how they negotiated it because he could play out the year, but at the end of the day, all the Colts have to do is, you don't want 12 and a half? All right, here's a tag for 11 or 12 flat. I, I just I don't see a way for them to fix this issue other than complicating their own individual contract situations. I don't disagree. And that's why it's such a complicated uh, issue. It's just hard to believe that we've gotten to the point that running backs are so devalued, and they are. Mm-hmm. It used to be, well, you, you know, I remember the Bill Pulley years. It really was play him for four years and, and just work the heck out of him, and then you move on. Now, it was a little different with Edge, although he didn't get a second contract. His rookie contract, if I remember, was a six-year deal, so it's apples and oranges, sort of. But teams are finding out that even if you get a really, really, really good back, Dalvin Cook, you know, was it four straight thousand yards and Pro Bowls and all that, that it's such a passing league that you can find a guy. And that's such a slap in the face to every running back that, boy, you're really good, but yeah, we, we we can find a replacement. So you, you're right. That's why if the Colts want to play hardball, you say, okay, I think it's $4 million this year as a base, and then we'll give you, you know, the franchise tag will be 11 or something next year, and it'll be 12 the next year. Yeah, that's why it seems like any extension, if they do it, it's got to at least equal his pay this year in two franchise tags, which again is 25, 26, whatever, whatever, whatever they are. And whether they're willing to do that, I just have to believe that he's got easily three good years in him. I just do. And, and to think that you can replace him in the offseason, I, I guess you can. But he, he is an elite player in his position. He's still young. He would have had a, a, a decent year last year. I don't even know what was it, four or five games, whatever it was. He still averaged four and a half yards to carry. Mm-hmm. I mean, he wasn't just awful. And, and he was, you know, his effectiveness was impacted by the offensive line and the, and the ankle injury. He has not been an injured player. So I don't think, I don't think that's an issue. It's just going to be their, what they want to commit. To a running back, even a great one, and they wouldn't—I don't think they would do it. But you go into negotiations and say he's a running back; 
he had the greatest season by a Colts running back ever two years ago, 1,800 yards and whatever it was from scrimmage and the touchdowns, and we didn't make the playoffs. So how good was he? Well, it certainly wasn't his fault that they didn't make the playoffs. So I, I just think that, and again, I keep going back to, to one thing that maybe impacts, maybe doesn't. When we talked to JT the last time, it was he stressed his value in the community and all that. Well, that's good, but that's not going to have much weight. I just think it, it, it reinforces the team's practice of rewarding their own. Quentin Nelson, I mean, all these guys I, I, I rattle off that's gotten second contracts and and to think that they all of a sudden w- would play hardball with again to me their best player we could argue the, the best player and all that but but to, to, to play hardball and hold the line on him now if he's wanting 15 16 million a year I just he's not going to get it I just don't think he's going to get it I always thought the, the the contract that I would have liked for both sides to go after, and, and he wouldn't agree probably. Nick Chubb got three years, thirty six six. What's that? Thirteen three a year. I think that's a nice contract. I'm not sure he would want to settle for that, but there's going to have to be compromise on each side. I just keep going back to their practices have been rewarding your own. And this will be a break from that if they don't do it. And players will players will notice. Other players will notice that that all of a sudden you're not rewarding your own. That's why I say I think it gets done providing his side shows a little bit of of, of compromise and the coach compromise by paying him more than, than what they might want to pay him. He's Mike Chapel joining us here on the fan. You mentioned that the players, they agreed to this system. And I'm not saying they're dumb, but sometimes in the moment you don't foresee how badly things will end up. And it's been a horrible system for running backs in particular. Did they know at the time what they were saying yes to, in your opinion? Sure. Because because whatever the number of players do the math – 60 players by 32, let's say 2,000 players. This is only impacting 10 players, 12 players. So the the vast majority of players will never, ever be impacted by the franchise tag. They just won't. And maybe they, they fought for better benefits, whatever. And if, if, if the vast majority of the players wanted X instead of fighting for Y, which would have been a franchise tag or whatever, that's not. It's just not going to be a factor because the majority it, it, it isn't going to be ever ever impacted by by these tags. So I'm not surprised that the players allowed this because it's not going to impact them. It's going to impact again a dozen players a year maybe. So it, that, that's one where I, I just think that the majority of the players that. Eh, that's not going to impact me. I want I want this. I'm more than willing to give. You know, maybe they wanted, you know, less workout time in the off season or better benefits, whatever. And they weren't even. You're not going to get the majority of the players to go to war to save 
you know, the the the, the running backs or the tight ends on franchise tags. They're, they'll never do that. Chap, why do you think it is that with basketball, for instance, and I know the salaries are different, so maybe not from a financial standpoint, but just a uproar standpoint from within the sport, why do you think it is there hasn't been this huge backlash of like old archaic big men that used to dominate said sport and feel like they're left out of the equation versus here in football where, again, running back isn't necessarily obsolete, but just the way that it's gone about being valued has diminished to a point where, I mean, yes, particularly middle of the pack to bottom salaries or closer to kickers and punters, then those shouldn't be embarrassed about it being that close. Why do you think there's this big of uproar with this position group specifically when it might just be a fact of the sport has changed? It's changed what is valued as premium, must-have, no cost is too great within that sport. Well, I think a big reason is we're in a dead period of news. These six weeks or eight weeks, whatever, whatever it's been, and we're all looking for something to write about. But the players are the ones that are talking about it. Is my issue, oh, Chaplin? Yeah. Like they're standing up for themselves yeah. with it in such a way you just don't see in a lot of other sports. Well, but then that's the social media that that wasn't as prevalent, sure, sure. many many years ago. And you know, I, I was really I've been surprised, sort of pleasantly, I think, that JT's been vocal. Because I remember at the end of the last season, he sort of took the approach, yeah, an extension would be nice, but you know I signed a four-year deal, I knew what I was doing, and yada, which made it sound like he'll be a good soldier. Now, all of a sudden, the last time we talked to him, it was like, you know, we're going to explain to him my, my value and this, that, and the other. And he really, maybe it was a change of agents, maybe that was it. He's taken on, I'm not saying militant, but, but, but a more aggressive, you know, look. I better look out for me. And I think across the league, other players, I think they do tend to come to the defense of their colleagues. And when one player or one position group starts getting attacked, they sort of say, hey, wait a minute. You know, we have value. And to think that Derrick Henry doesn't have value to Tennessee is crazy. They, they built that franchise around him. Uh, but, but when it comes to the Josh Jacobs and Saquon Barclays, it's really a strange time in the NFL to where – now, I, I tell you, I saw one guy tweet that did, it was just stupid how he compared <laughs> running backs to field goal kickers. Mm-hmm. The, the the average you know, salary was like, was it 2.6 to 2.3 or whatever it was. And that was, that, that's where if you're really good at your job in the media – you can make numbers sing if you want them to. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about comparing 32 kickers to every team has like four running backs. And three of them are, are making minimum. So it's, gonna, it's just going to drag the numbers down. So when I saw that, I thought, no, of all the arguments you're going to make, don't make that one. But I, I do think running backs are getting the short end of the stick, especially the really good ones. You know, where would Vegas be without Josh Jacobs? I mean, he, he was like, was it 40% of their offense last year, or at least our touches? And, again, it, it just goes back to where back in the day it was, hey, get five years out of, out of a running back, and, and we'll move on. Bill Poirier and I used to take the approach, I'd rather get rid of a running back a year too soon than a year too late on a contract. 
and maybe we're seeing that again. And I go back to as great of a year as JT had two years ago, the Colts didn't make the playoffs. And, again, that's not to you know, downgrade him at all because that was a fantastic season. But who's the last league rushing champ to make the Super Bowl? I guess Sean Alexander. Hmm. It's just such a passing league and quarterback-driven. But at least locally, this this team still should and needs to value the running back because Anthony Richardson needs that that running running attack. Minshew needs it. So this is a little different. I compare it again, like I said, I compare it to Barkley and the Giants. But I think his value, JT's value here, is more than it might be with other teams. I think something gets done only because it makes sense. But uh, we'll see how this thing pans out. It's a very, very interesting situation with JT and the Colts. No doubt about that. Mike, appreciate your time today, man. Hope you have a good rest of the day. You guys too, but stay in touch. Thanks, Chap. Absolutely. There he is, Mike Chappell. Covers the Colts for CBS4 and Fox 59.